Walsh has got it, twigging around. Gee, the tackle was a little high. Collingwood win by four. McComb not quite. Gorn hopeful. Now Jamari Ugalhagen kicks it long. It's got a lot of carry. That's something extraordinary. It's a high five from Jamari Glory. Just coming back. Hey guys and welcome to the 34th edition of the In The Sand Show. Today we're talking all about boxing as we review last week's predictions for the mega fight week that we had last week and also we are joined with the co-creator of the Craft of the Draft and sports journalist John T. Ralph Smith. So let's get into the news and we're going to review the first fight of last week and that was Australian Justice Huni taking on Andrew Tabidi over in Cancun, Mexico a domination from Justice Huni in the smaller ring that was in Cancun looked to suit the Aussie and it was a matchroom card it was a pretty big fight card it was headlined by a world title fight you'd think it, everything would be top notch over there um, on one of the biggest promotions in the world gets there and the ring's much much smaller I thought that uh, that really helped Justice Huni he's the bigger fella uh, he's much bigger than Tabidi uh, suited him he has he has um, that power that to just push him up against, push Tabidi up against the ropes. And I think that as a heavyweight fighter, if you've got that size and you've got that flexibility that you can push your opponent up against the ropes, they've got no chance. So majority of the fight was up against the ropes where Justice Huni just teed off on him. And again, a domination. Having Tabidi up there, his size and weight played a, a part in the control element of the fight. But I don't think Tabidi could handle it. Tabidi, uh, once challenged for the Cruiserweight World Championship, moved up a weight class, defeated someone at heavyweight that he came in probably shouldn't have beat, um, now had to face the world-renowned Just Huni. Now Huni is just stepped out of the Australian domestic scene, knocked out pretty much all of the Australian domestic scene, go on, take home a WBA international heavyweight title, uh, went to the judges' scorecards. Some of the judges gave all 10 rounds to Justice Huni. Now, it brings the question up, does Huni have that knockout power? He had to beat up against the ropes majority of the fight. Now, let's say you've got a Deontay Wilder up against Tabidi or a Tyson Fury up against, and he's got them up against the ropes. One punch, it's done. Now, Huni was teeing off on Tabidi, and at times he could have knocked him out. But it just it just doesn't, didn't seem that he's got that heavyweight knockout power that he needs. I think he might have it. It's just, can he utilize it? Uh, maybe he's just trying to get the rounds in. But yeah, he's, he's taken home the WBA international heavyweight title. He got the job done uh, on the judges' scorecards pretty comfortably. I gave nearly every round to Justice Huni in that fight. And hopefully he can move on to bigger and better things. And uh it's looking really good for Australia's heavyweight division internationally so far. I've got the likes of Joseph Goodall, who did step in the ring 
with Justice Hooney headlining a top-ranked card uh, tomorrow against F.A. Ajiba. Um, that's really good for the Australian heavyweights. He came off a huge win um, over in the U.S., and he's got another great chance. And hopefully we could see a rematch with um, Joseph Goodall and Justice Hooney over in America. I think that would make such a great fight. And for a world ranking up on the cards, it's it's so big. So we're going to move on from the Justice Hooney fight. Now, again, really strong from Kiwi, Joseph Parker. Great performance. This was for the WBO and IBF Intercontinental Heavyweight titles. The first round, we're going to go round by round here. First round, Simon Keane, his opponent, appeared extremely unorthodox with his wide and unusual stance. Just didn't look like he belonged in the ring with someone like Joseph Parker. Parker just used his jab, was really dominant. Um, going to the second round, Parker was landing so, like his shots were so clean. He clipped him early with a left hook and a cross combo. Keane began, began to stumble. Parker's jab just really started to connect with Simon Keane, uh, the Canadian. Uh, Parker looked to pick his shots and his fight IQ just appeared better, stronger. And Keane looked really unorthodox with his movement and his stance, the way he'd throw his punches. It was just really weird. And I think Joseph Parker knew that one one shot would just be like end the fight. Um, Parker had had Keane up against the rope, swinging and landing, hurt Keane. Keane wanted to bring it, bring it showing off and pretty much emoting in the middle of the ring. And he, again, didn't look like he was supposed to be there. Uh, didn't affect Parker. An uppercut dropped Keane and that was it. Parker's backed uh, by Andy Lee, the trainer of Tyson Fury. He's got a world champion accolade uh, under his belt as a coach. This is his sixth time being trained by Andy Lee. Now, having Tyson Fury in a camp with Joseph Parker, it just shows that maybe maybe if Tyson Fury uh, starts to wrap up uh, his career, we could see Joseph Parker come back. Now, many people think he's a bit old, but he's not that old. I think he's around 32, 33. Uh, especially as a heavyweight, that's that's not that old, and I think this is a huge win, puts him back on the world title pedigree, and he's back on the world rankings. I think uh, being in a camp with Andy Lee and someone with his, his experience is just crucial for someone like someone like um, Joseph Parker. Headlined uh, the No Limit card back in May, if I'm correct, at Margaret Court Arena. I was there. It was a really good good night. And he, he got the job done early, and I think his knockout power is unbelievable. Maybe, again, we could see Justice Hooney, Joseph Parker. Again, that would be a really, really cracker fight. Uh, Hooney's got one title to his name. Parker's got the two. Let's see how that one goes. I think that would be a really good matchup. Um, that's just my view. And now we're going to look at the biggest fight of the weekend, Tyson Fury up against Francis Ngannou. Now, this was a spectacle and a half. You have the champion of MMA of the world in the heavyweight division up against the boxing heavyweight champion, Tyson Fury. Both of them really strong fighters. Both possess that knockout power. Many thought that by the time you step in the ring, Tyson Fury's got that experience. He's knocked out Deontay Wilder and someone like Deontay Wilder appears uh, much bigger, much stronger in my eyes than Francis Ngannou. I think I thought that Fury was going to get in there. It was going to maybe go to the eighth, ninth round, um, and and that would would have been it uh, for Tyson Fury. 
um, he would have knocked him out. But didn't appear that way. It was it was a it was a really really weird fight. Um, I thought Tyson Fury appeared not like his usual self. Uh, normally he come up, just jab a bit more, do some more damage. He got hurt. He got knocked down in the third round and went to the judges' scorecards and then it went to a split decision victory um, over to Tyson Fury. Now this race, a lot of alarms in the public eye. Many thought that Ngani got the job done, watched the fight back, had a look at it again. I can I can argue why, um, why Francis Ngannou could have won. Looked at it, I probably had it maybe five five, or um, to 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 it would would have been a draw. Would have been five rounds apiece. Um, it was a ten round fight, um, but with Francis Ngannou getting the knockdown, that would have given him the victory because you get a point taken away. Um, it's a ten eight round if you get the knockdown. So I was like, yeah, maybe Ty- maybe Tyson Fury should have lost, and Francis Ngannou should take that accolade. But obviously. I can see how Tyson Fury could have won. I could have seen how it could have been a draw and I could have seen how Francis Ngannou could have won um, as well. So a lot of a lot of debacles going on with that. Maybe people are saying that Fury isn't up to that world championship accolade after that performance. He should rematch Francis Ngannou. Now, that that match against Alexander Usyk um, for the heavyweight championship to unify the belts has been delayed. It was supposed to be December the 23rd or something like that, um, but now it's been pushed to 2024, and I think Tyson Fury needs to step up his game if he's going to stand a chance with Alexander Usyk. Now Usyk's a, an absolute warrior, and I think if he struggled with Francis Ngannou, Usyk's going to batter him. So that wraps up my reviews for that mega week of boxing, especially in that heavyweight division uh, in the world. Um, hope you enjoyed it. After the break, we're joined with John T. Ralph Smith, co-creator of The Craft of the Draft and sports journalist at the Packingham Gazette. So thank you for listening to the In the Sand Show. I'll catch you after the break. Oi, 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 oi. IGA is shopping nights. IGA, where the price is right. Seaford North IGA for your groceries and liquor. IGA Express, there's nothing quicker. Welcome back to the In The Stand show, and now we're joined with co-creator of Craft of the Draft and sports journalist, Jonty Ralph-Smith. So, first of all, Jonty, how are you going? Yes, very good, Alex. Good to be here and looking forward to having a chat. Yeah, so first of all, for people that don't know, what is the Craft of the Draft? Yeah, so Craft of the Draft is a project that I started with a friend, Nathan Seppi, at the start of this year that just focuses on the boys and girls talent league. So the under 18s, the best prospects coming through, I guess. And particularly with a, with a strong emphasis on those that do fly under the radar, obviously there is a lot of media attention around some of those top guys and the guys that go in the first round, but there's a lot of really interesting storylines and fascinating players outside of that top realm so we like to focus on those guys and and then the girls don't get much attention whatsoever so that's been a really big focus area for us as well so it's it's been a fun year focusing on them and obviously it's all going to culminate later this month so some exciting times yeah what prompted you to make the idea 
Uh, what prompted us was we'd both been at the Sandy Dragons, so a, f- a bit of a footy factory in the last decade or so for, for the last couple of years. And I guess we really enjoyed the space of getting to connect with people that were sort of 17, 18 and, and looking to get into the AFL or take their footy as far as they could. But we just wanted to expand out and rather than just focus on one club, we, we wanted to focus on the whole league. And yeah, but we both had some contacts from outside of just the Dragons and just wanted to draw on those to then promote a few other storylines. And from there, it just sort of catapulted into a channel, which is both a weekly podcast and lots of other content. Yeah. Can you tell me more about your experience at Sandy Dragons? I know you also work with Frankston as well. Um, How was that experience? How did they come about? And uh, what did you learn from them? Yeah, so Sandy Dragons and Frankston. So I went down to Frankston. So I think I emailed them when I was in about year 10, just wanting to get some media experience. So essentially, I think I knew from a pretty young age, I was pretty blessed with the fact that I knew I wanted to be a sports journalist. So I had a chat to, to some people down at Frankston. I noticed they didn't have much media really in their channels at all. So yeah, I was fortunate enough to write some stories for them. And did that from 2019 to 2021 and did a remote podcast during the COVID ruined year of 2020, which was good experience as well to continue gaining some experience in the industry. And then, yeah, was at Sandy from 2021 to 2022. So they won the premiership last year, which was pretty exciting to see, I guess, up close. But no, from from what I gained from it was probably just the, the inner workings of, I guess, a semi-elite sporting organisation, both of those obviously second-tier sporting clubs. And, yeah, just really enjoyed, I guess, establishing relationships and, and polishing my writing, polishing my craft. Obviously, now working as a journalist, I think that gave me a really strong grounding of understanding the way that footy clubs like to, I guess, shape their image, and I, I enjoyed helping them do that. Yeah, going back to the show and the podcast, did you have an intended message um, to audience or viewers? Uh, in terms of an intended message, it was probably just to, just to, I guess, show the storylines of some of those players that you don't hear as much about and show that particularly in the girls' space that there is, it is worth sort of investing in and it is worth spending some time watching because particularly next year, as we've touched on throughout our podcast, is probably the first, I guess, girls super draft coming up. And that's something that's been really fun. So it's probably just getting people to realise that outside the first round, there's plenty of players to be excited about. Even even if they do just go on to the VFL level, they've they've done plenty to get to a coast league list and have got plenty to offer at senior footy. Yeah. So about the coast league and this year, can you give us a brief summary of both the boys and the girls' season? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the boys' season, I guess, from a Coates League point of view, it's always interesting because the Sandy Dragons are probably, and Oakley Chargers, probably less so this year, but generally the Oakley Chargers are the two teams that are the most dominant. But they both lose lots of players through the middle of the season to schoolboy footy. They have to play APS and AGSV footy, and those two teams are the most affected by that. So... I think the season played out the way it often does in that those two teams, or particularly Sandy, really started the season really strongly. This is on the boys' side. Went through a little bit of a lull, but was still pretty strong through the middle because they did have really, really good depth this year. And then, yeah, came came home like a freight train. They they won their last six matches, I think, or, or five of the last six. And, yeah, went on to win the premiership. They were easily the most talented list in it. And then... The, the country teams, I guess, uh, takes them a little while to gel because you look at teams like Gippsland, Murray, GWV, 
and these sort of teams, they they don't train together as often as the Metro teams do just because of the geographical difficulties. They only train together once a week. So a team like Gippsland, it was really good to see them uh, win win a final and, and beat Dandenong because I think they had a lot of talent and it was good to see their players play those extra couple of postseason games. And the other big storyline from a boys' point of view was Tassie. It was good to see them go all the way to the prelims. And I think they've got a really deep draft crop this year, which is really positive and I think ties in with the fact that they're obviously getting an AFL team. And then from a girls' point of view, Eastern and Oakley were clearly the two most talented lists and both had really consistent seasons and were deserving grand finalists. And Oakley were the better team on the day, but I think that could have gone either way. And they, they played a couple of really... In interesting games throughout the season and Dandenong was, was really strong as well. They went on a nine-game winning streak before losing the preliminary final, but they've got lots of talent to look for at the AFLW draft break this year and next year. Yeah. Do you have a most improved player for the boys and the girls? Uh, most improved players are an interesting one. I, I think I think from, from a girl's from a girl's point of view, um, the there was a there was a lot of bottom ages that that really stood out this year. I talk about the AFLW sort of super draft that's that's coming up. So I, I look at players like um, like a Sienna Talleridi, and I think it all sort of came together on Grand Final day for her. Whether I call her the most improved, I don't know, but it all came together on Grand Final day for her. Seven or eight intercept marks as a seventeen-year-old who isn't draft eligible to next year was really impressive, and then. And then on the boys' side, yeah, I think someone who improved as the season went on, another bottom major was Christian Moraes. It took him three or four games probably to really find his feet at the level. And, and he was, you know, pretty solid in those games. But those last five or six games of the season, he was outstanding as a sort of clearance midfielder and, yeah, ultra impressive as well. So, yeah, those those two players are names that come to mind. But, yeah, there were plenty of, plenty of players that use the season, particularly top-age players, to enhance their draft chances, which is always important. And, and Jath would be the other one, actually, from Gippsland. Um, he's a brother of Chankworth Jath from Hawthorne and, yeah, played a really strong wildcard game against Dandenong. Yeah, who's the team that you think we all have to look out for next year? In the talent league? Yeah. 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 Um, I think the team to look out for in the talent league next year is, well, we'll, we'll start from a girl's point of view and I think uh, I think you'll find that that Sandy will be a little bit stronger than what they showed this year. They didn't quite make the top four, but they did have a they did have a little bit of a a difficult draw this year. So from a girls' point of view, I think they'll be strong. But I do still think Eastern and Oakley will be the two teams to beat. Both of those teams played with a lot of bottom ages and even double bottom ages this year. And I think that that talent being exposed for this season is only going to hold them in good stead next season. And then looking looking at next season from a boys' point of view, it's hard to go past Oakley. They've got Fino Sullivan and Jagger Smith, who both probably, if the 2024 draft was held tomorrow, will go in the top five. And then they've also got Tom Gross, who's not far behind behind those two. They've got Patrick Reshko, they've got Charlie Richardson, they've got a whole host of talent, and they're probably the best team on paper at this point, I would say, for 2024. Yeah. On this note, can you give me your top five prediction for the boys and the girls in the draft? Like who will go top five? Yeah, for this year or next year? This year. This year. Yeah, for this year. Um, so from a from a boys' point of view, I'd say that you, you're probably looking at number one, you know, obviously being Harley Reid, number two being Dan Kurt, and number three being Colby McKercher, number four being um, a bid for Jed Walter, and number five being... Um, 
Zane Dersma uh, from the Gippsland Power. I've really enjoyed Zane Dersma's season um, and he went into the midfield as well and looked really, really confident there. Uh, from a girl's point of view, obviously just cover we just covered the, the talent league, so I'll just give you five talent league names to sort of watch out for at the upper echelons of the draft. And I'd say Alicia Pisano, a really creative small forward who really hard to match up on. I spoke to lots of coaches this season who said that they thought that Alicia Pisano's direct opponent played really well and Alicia Pisano still managed to kick two or three goals. So she's really impressive up forward. Michaela Williamson from the Dandenong Stingrays, a really smooth mover, will be at the upper rungs of the draft. Laura Stone got 14 touches in the first quarter of the grand final. So she's a big game player and can play across all thirds of the ground. So those three are, are certainly uh, would certainly be a clear top three. Then from there, it probably evens out a little bit. But there's there's so many players you could talk about, like Jess Wrench and Christy Lee Western Turner. I'll put in there as well. Jess Wrench, a really really good line breaking halfback out of the GWV Rebels, and then Christy Lee Western Turner. Uh, Western Jets tall forward who was a little bit injury interrupted, but at her best is really athletic. Yeah, you just said you were talk- talking to a couple a couple coaches. How do you go about developing connections with not only coaches but also players as well? Yeah, I think coaches. It just comes back to the fact that I think uh, something that there's no substitute for in the industry is probably being at games and and being where possible. It's not always possible with every team. Being at training sessions, which we did a little bit. Um, so yeah, the more people see you, the more they sort of respect you, and the more conversations you can have with them. So. Yeah, I think we also had lots of conversations with them over the phone when we weren't able to get down to games. So we showed we were really interested in what what they were producing, I guess, from an on-field point of view. And, and same thing with players. Uh, we we post about players quite frequently. And I guess when, you know, a Geelong Falcons player sees that their teammate has, has been posted about, they enjoy really engaging with that and, um, yeah, sort of send us messages and that sort of thing. And we're always very responsive on Instagram to messages, so feel free to hit us up. But, um, no, we, we always we always, always speak to players at games as well. So, yeah, there's always lots of opportunities. And as long as you're using, you know, your opportunities when you're at games to speak to people, I think that's really important. Yeah, you just said about your Instagram and people connecting through your Instagram. How do you how did you go about developing your brand on Instagram and to the public for it to grow? Yeah, I think that took us a little bit of time to be honest, but it, yeah, I think we have we have a we have a brand, we have a identity that we like to I guess stay true to and I think that 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 shows even in all of our Instagram posts there's we've got a logo that uh, is present on all of our Instagram posts. We've got, I guess, colours that people would associate with us now if they're aware of what we do and they're sort of in the industry. So those sort of things are really important. So just at a surface level, people know who we are. And yeah, again, it probably just goes back to making sure we have that clear, consistent messaging of promoting those under the radar sort of prospects. Yeah. Talking about um, interviewing the under under the radar prospects and maybe people that are, you've interviewed as a bottom ager, do you have someone that you've seen started, you've interviewed before and then looked onto their career and seen how much they've grown? As a player? Um, no, just talking-wise, just like public speaking and talking to the public. Yeah, I think Harry Sheasel's one that comes to mind, actually, funnily enough. So I got to – so I, like I said to you, he obviously – Obviously, myself working at Sandy, he was obviously a Sandy Dragons junior and an Ajax junior as well. And, um, yeah, I got to speak to him in his bottom age year at the Sandy Dragons. So this is in 2021 after he played a couple of really strong games as a forward. And, 
yeah, and he'll so he was a forward to Sandy Dragons level, and that's something that people who follow the AFL are probably aware of. But yeah, I don't think people are quite aware of just how dominant he was if, if you didn't yeah. watch him. But um, yeah, no, the first time I spoke to him, really quiet kid, really humble, as is really, really obvious now. But he was really quiet, and yeah, seeing the way he sort of developed with all the interviews that he had, obviously during his draft year going as high up as he did and the all, all the publicity he got for the season he had at North Melbourne this year, it has been good to see him develop both in the way he speaks um, and I think he's gotten a lot more confident. But also in, yeah, like you say, his footy, like he's, he's shown that versatility that now he plays off halfback and he's, He's in his first year, you know, one of one of North Melbourne's most important players already, and and I think his resilience when the the things have been going against his team has been something which has been really impressive. Yeah, talking about interviews, do you have a favourite interview? Uh yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, the the one that comes to mind is probably one I did with Harry Demetia last week or a couple of weeks ago. So that'll come out on the channel, um, yeah, early November, and is yeah one that I'm. Really, really looking forward to other people seeing because I, he speaks as well as anyone that I've ever spoken to, and I have no no issues with saying that because he speaks he speaks so professionally, and he's the co-captain of the Dean Nong Stingrays, he co-captain to Big Country as well, and a lot of people talk about his ability to deliver a message, and yeah, I think that that'll really come through in the interview because yeah his understanding of both his game professionalism leadership and the way he's able to speak without sort of hesitance shows how shows how excellent I guess a leader he can be at the next level if he if his footy is able to adapt quickly which I'm sure it will so yeah he's one that stands out I I also thought that Jacob Anderson last year didn't get drafted but he's a Halebury boy I know you're a Halebury boy um and and, um, yeah, he spoke really well. So probably until a couple of weeks ago, I would have said that Jake was the best spoken um, player that I'd spoken to. But, yeah, Harry certainly takes that over pretty comfortably now. Yeah. So on on the show, um, you're obviously a two-man team. How do you go about connecting with Nathan and uh, producing the show? Yeah, communication is really important. So we both know when each other's um, – we both know when each other's – a little bit more busy and uh, someone else has to pick up the slack. So having two people there is really important. And we both have slightly different strengths, which we're able to to draw on as well. So uh, I think that just comes from our background being slightly different in terms of what we're experienced in with the media. So yeah, he looks after certain things and, and I look after certain things a little bit more as well, but we both enjoy learning each other's strengths. So we're able to become a, li- a little bit more well-rounded, but no, he's been really important, particularly in the production side of things. Yeah, so you're obviously a sports journalist as well for the Pakenham Gazette. Uh, how have you gone about, um, sorry, obviously you're being a journalist. How has that helped you uh, with the craft of the draft stuff? Yeah, I think just understanding uh, interview interviewing strategies, understanding how to, how to get the most out of chats with people and understanding how to establish relationships um, have been really important skills that are really transferable because at the end of the day, Craft of the Draft is, a, is an Instagram channel and a podcast, but what we're doing is essentially the job of a journalist in terms of trying to source information and understand the content and deliver it in as simple a term as possible for our viewers and, and telling the story really effectively. So it's really similar and a really transferable skill base. And the other thing is that at the Packham Gazette, I get to cover the Stingrays and the Gippsland Power. So understanding and having an intimate knowledge of those two teams has been really helpful. Yeah, so that wraps up all the questions. Thank you, Jonty, for joining me today. I really appreciate it. I wish you all the best. No worries. Likewise.
That wraps up the In The Stand show for this week. So thank you for listening to the In The Stand show. I'll catch you next week. Walsh has got it. Twigging around. Gee, the tackle was a little high. Collingwood win by four. McComb not quite. Gorn hopeful. Now Jamari Ugalhagen kicks it long. It's got a lot of carry. That's something extraordinary. It's a high five from Jamari. Glory. Just coming back. Sorry.